Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And today we're very excited because we are going to be speaking with the president of the National Employment Lawyers Association's Illinois chapter, NILA Illinois, Catherine Simmons-Gill. She is the founder of the offices of Catherine Simmons-Gill, LLC. Catherine has an extensive practice in intellectual property, represents clients in commercial litigation and general corporate matters. But obviously, because she's president of NILA in Illinois, she also has a robust employment law practice. Catherine's been practicing for more than four decades. She was previously the general counsel for two different publicly traded companies, the chief trademark counsel of a pharmaceutical company and counsel for Sears, Roebuck & Co. She's also an adjunct professor at John Marshall Law School and a certified mediator, and she graduated from Northwestern University. So in addition to all of those hats that Catherine wears, she also happens to be the president of NILA, Illinois. Catherine, welcome and thank you for agreeing to talk with us. Thank you so much for having me, Amit and Max. And just correct one little thing, I graduated from Northwestern University School of Law. I did not go there for undergraduate work. Thank you. Just just, just want to make sure the record is clear. I love that. That also highlights to me that you're a professor. <laughs> well, I like preciseness. my CVs to be accurate. How's that? <laughs> no, that's perfect. Professor and lawyer. So uh, Catherine, tell us a little bit about what drew you to employment law, that you've, you've had a pretty varied career to this point. You've got some impressive marks on that CV. What brought you to employment law? Well, for many years, what I did basically was IP law, no patents, but trademarks, copyrights, unfair competition, internet law on a worldwide basis, managed some gigantic portfolios all over the world, a supervised litigation with respect to those trademarks and copyrights. And like many women who advance up the ladder in a corporate structure or firms, I experienced some pretty unpleasant discrimination as a female. And when I finally decided that enough was enough and maybe the best thing to do was to hang out my shingle, which in layman's terms means open up a law practice on my own, I thought that maybe when I wasn't practicing IP, which is what I was doing then for some great clients, was that I could do a little payback. I could represent a few women, minorities, disabled people, people in protected classes, which for the non-lawyer person, it means somebody who's not in the majority in any workplace environment. And where I would be able to help people where the other employment lawyers didn't really want to do the work because they made so little money, maybe $25,000 a year, but they've been harassed by the president or sexually propositioned by the president. But I thought, well, I can kind of do this pro bono. And if they build back a little bit of their courage and feel like they stood up for themselves, that this would be something that I would be able to do. And it would be better representation than no representation. So I started out kind of from scratch, just based on my own experience. And that was in 97. And it came to be that in the mid 2000 teens, I ended up actually, true confessions, having my first 
jury trial, which lasted about eight days, first trial ever. I had never even had a half day trial or an hour trial in federal district court on a discrimination case. Now, IP law is practiced almost exclusively in the federal courts. So I was familiar with federal court practice, but most trademark cases settle because nobody wants a judge to tell them how they're going to cut their baby, their <laughs> trademark in half. So I had never actually gone to trial. And that was my baptism by fire. So that's how I got into employment law from just IP law and how I built my practice. That's, that's quite a story, Catherine. I, I have a couple follow-ups to that. You know, I, we, we hear a lot about the glass ceiling and, and gender equity in the workplace. And I, not being a woman and not having practiced when you did in those times, I, I can't say that I, uh, I'll be able to share that life experience. But, but it's been my hope that, you know, I think we all hope that we've made some progress in that vein. Do you, do you feel like that's the, I know you're not in that world anymore, but do you feel like that's the case? Has any of this stuff changed, at least at surface level? That's an interesting question, Max. Uh, I just had to fulfill my one credit for diversity. And I listened to a talk, two talks put on by one of the bar associations, one of which featured five judges and another of which fe featured a number of female attorneys. And the simple answer is it hasn't changed much. If you look at the statistics of equity partners in small, medium, and large firms, you will see that a very small percentage are women, although women are approximately 50% of those graduating from law school and have been for many years. When I graduated from law school, my class was over a third women. So the answer is not really. And Judge Kendall, who was one of the speakers on the panel, says that she has gotten to the point where when a male lawyer comes up with his token female associate next to him and introduces himself and then introduces the female associate, she turns to the female associate and says, and Miss Smith, next time I would expect you to introduce yourself. When she has an opportunity to give a role to a woman who comes in and says, well, I'm sorry, the senior partner isn't, isn't available today and I'm here to ask for an ex extension. She says, are you familiar with the case? And the young woman will say yes, or the middle-aged woman will say yes. And she'll say, well, then you go ahead. So, you know, people are trying to make a difference. But I would say there have not been major changes. And I am concerned with COVID and caregiving responsibilities falling disproportionately on women still, although not exclusively. There are some great men, parents, either full-time or bearing 50% of the burden, I would say we're going to see more falling off. Yeah, there was some statistic in December, yeah. and I wasn't legal uh, specifically, but I think all the jobs lost in the workforce were almost exclusively women as yeah. opposed to men, it, and it's not a great place to be. And have you noticed a change in your own class in terms of the split in terms of men to women? Oh, I actually, I am still technically an adjunct. It, that is not, but I have not actually taught a cl class for two or three years because there have been a lot of changes at the school. So I'm not teaching regularly. I'm just on call should they need it. What I saw in law school and what I see in many professional schools is we have all these hopeful 
50% women coming in, working hard, doing well, being on law review, being uh, high up in their MBA classes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then five or 10 years into the workforce, it's just the barriers are just overwhelming. There's a lot of gray area in our cases. And I think that's one of the hard things is it can be very clear. It can be very clear that you have this gap, whether by gender or race or what have you in a given setting. And at least you'd hope everybody would agree it's a problem. But then when it's like, well, it's time for somebody to give something up to make this right, or what are we actually going to do? You know, then it's like, oh, well, you know, we don't know, or it's hard, or we're trying. And it's like, yeah, well, it's not working. Well, California has taken a position that there must be one female on every board of a publicly registered company in California. And I believe one minority as well, but certainly one female. And there was a significant, a $10,000 a day or something like that financial penalty or 50, it was a big penalty if you fail to fulfill that requirement. So, you know, people respond to their pocketbooks. And if we mm -hmm. want it to change, we need laws where when people have to report what men are making in a particular position and what women in the same company are making in a particular position, if they're not making the same amount, more or less, that there is a penalty for that. When that's also been, I think, the motivation behind some of these laws about disclosure of salary. Illinois right. has passed an amendment to the Equal Pay Act. Other states have kind of done something similar to kind of prevent that gap or bridge that gap. Right. And one thing we didn't realize when we picked a title to our podcast, Employee to Lawyer, is that you literally did that. You, you became an employment attorney based on your own employment experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the only reason I do this. I expected it to always be a modest pro bono portion of my practice with clients that could not get redressed from people that needed to make a living from it because I was able to support myself on my IP practice. So I could take on people where if they got $10,000 and their dignity, they felt good. And so you go from this modest pro bono practice in 1997 or so to a huge appellate court victory in 2020. So walk us through this Vega uh, case that you worked on. Okay, so the, the title of that case is Lydia Vega versus the Chicago Park District. My clear understanding is your case is so much as good as your clients. Lydia Vega had an impeccable record at the Chicago Park District, impeccable. She was Hispanic. She got promoted very slowly. She took on a park, Bessemer Park, that when she walked in, they had three full-time security guards. Nobody came to the park. It was covered with graffiti and the gangbangers were out in her 13 acres every day roasting hot dogs. In fact, if I, I read the case recently, there was one day she, came, she showed up at work and there was a dead body outside, right? The sad thing is that was actually after she got the park very much to be a model park and it was winter and it was a fairly large area with a lot of trees and she had to drive the grounds like every two or three days. And it was a homeless person uh, who had just frozen to death, sadly, in part of the park. But Lydia took Bessemer Park, the name of the park is Bessemer, on the southeast side, and she turned it into a model park. And it started by, she got her staff together and she got the guards together and she said to the guards, 
well, the first thing she did was call maintenance and she said, can you paint over my graffiti to the head of all maintenance? She'd been there a long time. She had connections. He said, do you care what color? She said, I don't care what color. So he came and he, he sent somebody and they painted over it. And the next day there was more graffiti, but not everywhere. So she called again. And after about three weeks of calling this guy every day, he finally said, look, Lydia, I don't live too far from your park. I'm going to drive by every day. And if there's more graffiti, I'll send somebody. You don't need to call me anymore. And eventually, after six or seven months, that was the end of the graffiti. At the same time, she called together her security guards who were afraid to go outside the door. And she said, come on, we're going to go out and talk to the gangbangers. And I'm having the Chicago police come too. So she went out and she talked to these guys, tough guys, roasting hot dogs, and said, look, guys, your kids want to come here to this park and they're afraid to come. Your little brothers and sisters want to come to this park and they're afraid to come because you're here. And she said, and I'd like you to support me by staying off of park grounds the hours the park is open. And if you want programs, I'll get a basketball program going, a soccer program going, and a boxing program going. And if you want to be here during the day, then you come to those programs. Otherwise, you stay away when the park is open. And that was successful. So slowly she built up her program. She ended up with two Golden Glove winners, a male and a female. That's a long story that I won't go into. She ended up with a model park. She had all these special programs. She was fabulous. And one day a disgruntled employee, well, at, one, at some point, somebody complained through an anonymous phone call that Liddy was not working a full day. So she had two Chicago police officers who were seconded to the assigned to the Chicago Park District follow her around without her knowing it for six months. And the end of the story was they said that she was falsifying her timesheets because like every other park supervisor, she was writing down like nine to five, eight to four. These are manual timesheets that have not, they just have to be turned in to trigger a paycheck. She was writing down nine to five or eight to four, but she was actually working like eight to seven or nine to 10 p.m. because she had a golden glove thing. So in the period of time in question, she put in over a hundred hours of documented overtime. But they said, because for instance, on the day when she discovered the body in the field, she had written down nine to five, but she actually probably pulled in about 9.30 because she was out in the park trying to get the cops to come and assist her with this poor corpse that was falsifying her timesheets. So here's a woman that does a fabulous job who's Hispanic. There, is a, there are a dearth of Hispanic employees at the Chicago Park District relative to the city of Chicago. The, every other Hispanic employee who was either mentioned or who testified, testified that they had experienced discrimination and documented it. And the jury came back in less than three hours with a verdict for Lydia and $750,000. That's incredible. That's incredible work too. So two things that were striking to me about that case. One is kind of the timeline. She started, I think, in what, 1987? She got promoted in 04 and then separated in 2012? She started as a part-timer probably when she was in high school. She got a number of promotions. So you go from like trainee to, to assistant instructor to instructor to this to that and then she got some small parks and then she got this big park so she had a number of advances slowly up the ranks over the years so 
I don't know exactly when she was made a park supervisor, but she had been a park supervisor for a number of years and she had been employed for over 21 years when she was terminated after this six month investigation and then corrective blah, blah, blah. But she was flabbergasted and the way they did it was extremely humiliating. The park district was her life. She didn't build Bessemer Park without turning her life inside out to do it, hours and hours of time. So it was devastating to her. And their treatment of her caused some of her medical conditions, which had always been under control, chronic, to flare up to the point where they were uncontrollable. So they, there was a lot of evidence that the emotional wear and tear on her was substantial. And that, and that goes to my second thought about this specific case. We, we, you know, we mentioned earlier, you know, there's a lot of gray area when it comes to employment law, but her situation is not a case where there's an email that says we're going to treat her differently because she's Hispanic. Right. And so how did you get the jury to agree with you on that? So when you heard about the job she did and you saw that everybody acting in connection with her termination was either white or black. Mm -hmm. And when you heard every other Hispanic employee who testified saying, describing the discrimination they had experienced because they were Hispanic. And when you got the union rep who was African-American who, rep, who represented every park supervisor that was ever called into a corrective action meeting, say in the 10 years that he represented park supervisors at corrective action meetings, he had never represented a white park supervisor, even though they made, the, made up the vast majority of park supervisors. The writing was a bit on the wall for, for the situation. I mean, it took a long time to uncover all this Lydia was not only Hispanic, she was openly gay. That wasn't a problem. There are many female park supervisors at the Chicago Park District, so female alone wasn't enough. So ultimately, it really turned on the fact that Hispanics are just do not have mentors. They are not supported. So if somebody starts going after a white park supervisor, a bunch of buddies rush in to rescue them from their grievous sins. So we were able to point out other people committing far more serious offenses who were not terminated. Well, and to tie back to what we said on the front end of the podcast about the glass ceiling and how things go with gender, that'll, I mean, this sounds like a perfect, whether it's corporate America or the Chicago Park District or any other job, this sounds like part and parcel for what you were talking about. You got an old boys club and anytime one of the white supervisors gets in trouble, they all rush to his defense. And, you know, you've got this union rep saying, I've, you know, I've never had to defend a white supervisor in this. It's always Ever. right. In 10 years. Right. But they I think were either black or Hispanic, but in the Chicago park district, at least there is extremely significant bl black African-American contingent with their rescuers and white. The Hispanic contingent is quite small. The, even though the city's statistic, even though the city's population is roughly one third, one third, one third, Hispanics are very underrepresented at the park district. I don't know about other areas of the city of Chicago. I haven't had other cases against the city of Chicago. Well, and I think this case exemplifies why you got into employment law. If I remember correctly, she was being followed couple hundreds of times over six months by, I guess, various investigators. Is we have right? six, we have, 
both investigators were African-American. We had six months of videotapes, helter-skelter. Nobody knew who took them. They were mismarked. They were, I mean, quite frankly, the investigation was like the Keystone Cops. <laughs> but that's, so, think about how crazy that is to have poli- uh, 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 on-duty or off-duty police officers tailing somebody like that for this purpose. I mean, the the layers that you keep unpacking as you lay out the facts of the case here make it, it you know, the old phrase like truth is stranger than fiction. And if you pitch this as a movie script to somebody, they might say, no, come on, who's going to do this to a park, you know, a park supervisor? Like, no, they, they tailed this person. They, I, I mean, that's For crazy. six months, not just yeah. tailed six months. Well, they couldn't get anything on her. What they finally got was this timesheet falsification on 11 occasions where she signed in from nine to five and they could prove she didn't get there until nine 30 or something. Actually, of all the dates of the first six or seven, they admitted that they were not accurate, that they didn't even have the goods on the first six or seven. So we were down to a few. One day, they spent three or four hours trailing the car that they felt she should drive, but her niece was driving it. (laughs) She had borrowed a friend's car because the car needed repairs. So for her niece to drive it around the neighborhood was one thing for her to drive it all the way around to the southeast side. Not a good idea. She borrowed a friend's car. So they were not even following her. They didn't know until after the investigation was over what she looked like. They were following her car. (laughs) And I I think that also touches on a legal nuance to this that we all of us often deal with in our cases, which is in our discrimination or our retaliation whistleblower type cases. If, if or when your client actually gets fired and the employer comes forward with an excuse, you know, we have this burden of, of proving that it's a, you know, it's a, a pretext, right? It's not actually what it is. It's a, it's a legal fiction or an excuse they've created to, to justify this, this decision. But in this case, it sounds like the pretext, it's never easy, right? They've got the paperwork. You've got years of fighting through discovery and all of that. It seems like they weren't even terribly good at what they were doing in terms of establishing this pretext. They still believe they were correct. They still believe that with this six-month investigation, they caught her not being at work on time and that that's this grievous violation, looking at the letter of the law, not the amount of hours that Lydia worked that it was, you know, that she, they, they put her through three or four corrective action meetings, which with her union rep president, with her union rep present and her debunking many of the days on which they said her timesheets were wrong. Like she came in with evidence that her car was in the shop one day and that that day they were following the wrong car (laughs) or they weren't looking for the right car that they their thought is well she has a different excuse for every day these are just excuses i have a saying drink the kool-aid these employers that spend over a year so the investigation started like in september of 2000 and september october of 2011 and went through february of 2012 and then she had corrective action meetings and wasn't terminated until september of 2012 they think that having spent a year on this and collected a lot of paper that they were right well and, so and she's, 
I was just going to say, and, and one of the big picture issues, setting aside the legal component to this and just looking at the big picture is, you know, what you just described to us, Catherine, was this dedicated public servant who took years upon years of her life to take an area in a community that desperately needed something nice and worked tirelessly. I mean, this is the definition of like blood, sweat, tears. Let's see what other malapropisms and metaphors I can mix in here. But, you know, inch by inch, helping the community, partnering with community members to build a beautiful thing for community members. Meanwhile, you've got people tailing her with off-duty police officers running sham investigations. Excuse me, I want to I want to say these are not off-duty. Oh, they these were on are duty. Chicago police officers who are seconded. That means they are assigned to the Chicago Park District. Thank you for catching that. I Sorry. No, please. I I'm sorry. I missed what you said earlier, but the you point know, I was trying It's a city, it's a city agency. They would have a right to have police doing investigations yeah. they had some retired people doing investigations but these two were actually at the time they were doing this chicago police officers and i and i think what i think the bigger picture is you know you look at this person who works so hard you know against demographic odds in that department against the odds of the economics and everything else that was going on at that park and, and one of the big things that we we sometimes miss in our cases is this is, you know, there was a loss to the community here, too, by by the park district doing this. I mean, think about what it took for her to fight and claw and get that park to that point and for them to railroad her like that. Well, you know, that's the sad thing. It was it was a huge loss to the community. One of the people who worked for her, she had a very large program for disabled people who counted on the park district to work with their, to work with these people. Some were young and some were more, were older, but they had a special program for them. They had a specially trained person who worked with them and they were full. They had 40 people. And because of the ratio that you required in a program for people with these kinds of disabilities, they couldn't take any more. So her, the person whom she worked with to build that program came to testify and said that since she had left, well, before she came, he said nothing was going on in the park. After she left, the park had gone substantially downhill and the programs had been diminished. And yes, they had a park supervisor, but they did not have, it's a neighborhood that's half black and half Hispanic. They had a really demographically perfectly mixed group of people taking park programs and the next person who came in was a black park supervisor and none of the hispanics would come because there was nobody there who spoke spanish and in fact in the parks there needs to be at least one person in a park with hispanic people speaking people or the hispanics are much less likely to send their children or their grandmothers to the arts and crafts or the knitting or whatever it is if there isn't at least one person there who speaks spanish that's i mean that's natural right who's going to want to i mean if you don't feel like you're welcome or you're part of whatever's going on anywhere nobody's going to want to be part of that right well and the other aspect of this that i find frustrating is so her separation happens in 2012 it's now 2021 it's nine years later is the case over the case is not over. However, Lydia Vega is back at work. Good. She was reinstated. She was reinstated with back pay, back pension, the whole thing. So the case is not over. There was a, an appeal. The jury verdict on one of the two counts was sustained, and she was reinstated before the appeal was complete. And we are back up on appeal because afterwards, the judge granted a certain amount of legal fees, and also the appellate court had remanded 
for the judge to, quote, show his work with respect to a tax award. And for lay people, a tax award is if you get back pay for, say, a six or seven year period, you're going to get it in a lump sum. And you're going to pay much greater income taxes on that than if you had gotten it spaced out over six or seven years. So the courts permit an award of the incremental amount that one would pay in income taxes to help the person pay for the taxes for the pay that they received that should have been received over a period of years. So that went back, Judge, the judge, the district court showed its work. So it's back up on appeal on two things. One is the amount of attorney's fees that was granted to the plaintiff's counsel, me, and in this case, the Wood Law Firm, who joined me at the time of the appeal, but not before then. Two, they object. They say that the fees were too much, that the hourly rate I charged was too much, that the judge was wrong, and that his tax computation is incorrect and there wasn't enough evidence to support the tax award. So we're back up on appeal. We're right now in briefing. Our brief is due on the 22nd. Their reply brief is due two weeks after that. And then they've asked for oral argument, although I think the Seventh Circuit basically finds fee appeals pretty boring. And the last one that I listened to, which was about three weeks ago, they didn't ask a single question. <laughs> so maybe we get finality on this by the end of this year? I, I am hopeful that this is fairly simple. I don't think they'll give a long argument. I don't think they'll give more than five or 10 minutes aside to argue, oral argument. And then I think it's a, two fairly simple decisions. Did the judge abuse his discretion in granting fees? He has written very comprehensive opinions on his reasons for the fees that he has given. And on the tax award, you know, he has now shown the formula that he followed in doing that and the evidence on which he based his tax award. So I'm hopeful, you know, nothing's done until it's done. Because of the tax award, we don't know for sure what panel we'll have. Quite frankly, we could have any panel, but because part of it is coming back after a decision, it's not unlikely that we will get at least two of the three panel members that originally heard the first appeal. Well, and that's another factor about this case <laughs> I like, which is the third panel member is now Supreme Court Justice Barrett. That is correct. I don't think she's coming back to Illinois <laughs> to make a decision on a fee petition. Sure? I don't think <laughs> but so. But you're either, not but sure, though. <laughs> no, no. We'll send her an invitation. But she but did write the decision sustaining your previous award. She did write the decision sustaining the award that the court made based on its post-tax decision. Yep. So uh, the most interesting comment, I think, from Judge Barrett, when there were several, but one of them was it was amazing how well prepared she was. It was amazing with all the details of facts in this case, how well prepared all three judges were, considering the level of detail that they understood. So at one point, they were questioning, you know, the ma she got the maximum of, Lydia got the maximum of compensatory damage of $300,000. And Judge Barrett said, don't you think this is a lot of money? I said, and then I went into my whole explanation of the pain and suffering that she experienced that they had physical ramifications. And then I turned to her and I said, and judge, don't you think she should get something for inflation? And she <laughs> laughed. <laughs> Good for you. Well, and as a writing nerd, I really liked how she wrote the opinion, especially from a, a plaintiff's employment lawyer standpoint as well. So is there anything else that you think people ought to know about this case? This I'd actually like to go back to the first jury trial that I talked about, okay. which was a little bit earlier. And that was a police officer in a Lake County Sheriff. Is this the one that was eight days? Mm -hmm. 
Okay. It's quite a trial to have your first one. Trials don't always go that, for those who don't listen, an eight day trial is really, for non-lawyers, I should say, that's a really long trial. That's right. exhausting. And trial days well, are what, 5 a.m. to midnight? No, well, trial days for the working people, the judge usually kind of is nine, nine to four, nine to five. The judge tries to take a little bit of pity on the jury, particularly on Friday afternoons and things right. like that. But yes. For you, but. Right, so no pity on us. So. That matter involved a female Lake County Sheriff who was a canine officer who, unlike all the other male officers whose dogs were retired, whose canines were retired because at about 10 years, canines are done. They need, they need to go to dog retirement because they're worn out. And so every male before her had received just a replacement dog, but two females had canines at that point. And when their dogs retired, they had to reapply with everybody else. So she complained about discrimination. She was granted a dog. And then they staged a campaign to strip her of her, they call it stripper of her dog. And the reason they stripped her of her dog was because she failed to place a broken plastic coyote found in a schoolyard in the middle of the night into evidence. Like a plastic? Like she failed in her duty. Well, the notion was it would keep the geese away, oh, oh, but it okay. fell That's over terrible. in the middle of the night. And, <laughs> and some neighbors called and said, there's a dead dog out in the field. Oh. She walked over to it gingerly, saw it, picked it up, threw it in the back of her squad and ultimately threw it in a dumpster in her garage. And they said that she had failed to place evidence into the evidence locker. Wow. And that's why they stripped her of her canine. So another example of a person doing a fabulous job, but you know, she stuck her head above water and said, you discriminated against me and not giving me a dog. They had to give her a dog. And then they beat her up. When these are both situations too, where you're not dealing with necessarily people with deep pockets. They need counsel. I mean, they need what you wanted to do more of a modest pro bono type situation to be able to represent them. One of the things that works for me is that I can afford to take these, because I have an IP practice that pays the rent, I can afford to take on these cases that take six to 10 years and litigate them as if nothing else counted. For most employment attorneys, they don't have that luxury. And they're looking for cases that where they can get a good, quick resolution for their client that gives them some dignity, gives them a bit of money and, and keeps the rent paid and the lights on in their practice. If I didn't have my IP practice, I mean, I, I couldn't afford to handle the Vega case for 10 years right. with no, you know, with the, in, the other income that I was getting from employment cases. Let me tell you, <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. Well, and especially when you're litigating against government entities too, like the nice thing when you're up against a private business is the money tends to, at a certain point, no matter how personal the case is, most of the time, at a certain point, a business decision is made is that this becomes too expensive to fight or the money starts to add up. But when you're suing, you know, the Chicago Park District or a, a municipal police department, you know, they're, they're not paying. I mean, maybe they've hired outside counsel, but it's taxpayer money. It's not like- We're all getting paid by the taxpayers. Right. The court's getting paid by the taxpayers. The jury's being paid by the taxpayers. The lawyers on both sides are being paid by the taxpayers. There is no incentive to settle the case. Right, they when can fight forever. 
not only that, they can have police officers follow her around for six months and do an investigation. They can fight forever. They can continue to make it difficult. So it makes it really hard for Miss Vega, unless she has someone who's willing to take on a case for a decade. For both of these women was, one of them was never going to be a police officer again, because once you stick your head up in the way that she was willing to stick her head up, we got her to a good place in life where she's, but she misses being a police officer and she was a great police officer, another detriment to the community. And for Miss Vega, she was never going to work for a park district again. I mean, the court pointed out when they kept saying, well, you, you didn't, you didn't mitigate your damages because you didn't apply for park district jobs anywhere. And even the court was willing to say, there is no way with this ding on her record being terminated by the Chicago park district for cause that any other park district, county, city, state, whatever was going to hire her. What I like about this case, Catherine, besides the good work you did in fighting for somebody who really deserved it and writing an injustice, is it touches on so many of the issues we see, not just Amit and I, I mean, our bar, Neela, Illinois, people who are victims of discrimination see across the board. It's not just what happened to you in the moment when somebody did something reprehensible to you or or over time did something awful to you. It's not just that there's discrimination or retaliation, it's that it the punishment and the pain doesn't end the moment you're fired, you know, when it's a firing case, right? Like now you've been fired for cause and everybody tends to know, like it's harder to find a job when you don't have one or when you've got that black mark on your record. Now you can't be in this profession you've dedicated your life to good luck switching gears midway through your life, you know? Oh, well, Lydia, Lydia ended up being well-employed, but basically in an entirely unrelated field, it was very hard for her to find work, even in recreation, you know, like, programs for youth or recreations or whatever ultimate you know she's a person that's going to work because she needs to work she supports a disabled mother she supported two nephews you know she needed to work so she put together some stuff and worked her way up and you know that's that that's that's who she both of these women that's that's how they are and again I, i think i need to say yes i can i stuck with it but these cases were made by the women I represented. They were fabulous witnesses for themselves and for women generally. And they, they both made the jury cry, literally cry. Heather describing walking by the canine they stripped her of in a car every day where they had given him to a white male and the dog crying for her every day when she walked into roll call. And Lydia talking about the programs that she missed and her kids that she missed and particularly the disabled people that she, you know, one of the most touching stories was Winston, Mr. Winston, who was the person who worked with these, there was a little boy who came who didn't speak a word. He couldn't tie his shoes. He couldn't hold a fork. He couldn't do anything. But Mr. Winston worked with him all the time. And one day after he was sitting with him and he tied his shoes, the little boy said, thank you. First time he ever spoke because of the Chicago Park District and the program that Lydia put together and the guy that she mentored who did wonderful work with these people. He spoke for the first time. That's incredible. And I don't know how you go from a career you've had for a couple of decades to losing it to now having to figure out how am I going to pay for 
my mother's health insurance or my nephew's health insurance and how about my own health insurance with my chronic conditions yeah and i think that gets lost a lot of times in these employment situations of you get separated what are you going to do on the fly yeah well and of course for lydia for the first year while she was on unemployment camp and medicaid because she couldn't afford afford cobra she just had to get beyond the depression you didn't, she couldn't afford to be depressed, right? Like she, well, she, she could actually, she talked about the first three or four months, literally she could barely get out of bed. It's awful. Well, it had been her purpose. Cause the park district was her life. Her park was her life. Right. And they took her family. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think she did before she got reinstated. She did that job from 1987 or so until 2012. Yes. A teenager. So yeah. Yeah. Since she was a teenager, that's correct. So with these two cases, and maybe this is a more of a global question, how do you do case selection? Is it you pick up the phone, you talk to these two women, and you're immediately you just know that, how do you know, you know, I'm going to be in this case for a decade and decide to say, all right, I'm in. I, I, I'm signing up for the next decade. I want to do this. Yeah. Now. You know, unlike many people who have a plan for their life, <laughs> I have never had a plan. I went to law school because my husband suffered post-Vietnam stress syndrome, and I realized that I was going to have two kids to support. We didn't know that right after people came back from Vietnam. We didn't know that for seven years. Do you know what I'm saying? So it was business school or law school. I felt that men were more willing to accept women as advisors or lawyers than they would be as co-business people. So when I went to law school... I took this course in trademarks and copyrights from Beverly Pattisall. Beverly is a guy, by the way, he's no longer with us. And I loved it. And they liked me. And then I did my senior thesis on a section of the current trademark act called 43 of the Lanham Act under their supervision. And they hired me out of law school. I didn't go to law school to become a trademark lawyer. I was working in the clinic every day, you know, doing little, you know. So that's how I got into trademarks. And then, you know, I went to a corporate, I went to corporations because I had two small kids and I went, then I continued in the IP field. And then when I hung out my own shingle after my not always great experiences in the corporate and firm workplace, I thought, well, uh, I do this little employment stuff. My, my Lake County sheriffs, Department right. case I, I love the dog. was recommended to me by my divorce attorney. So this Lake County Sheriff, when she was on light duty, was a courtroom deputy in Lake County. And she really admired my divorce attorney who did not represent me in Lake County. And she went to my divorce attorney and she said, Ms. Shapiro, I've got this problem. Who would you recommend that I contact? And she said, Catherine Simmons Gill. So that's how I got my big case. And then Lydia came along because I had, I had another Hispanic woman who came to me. I did not win her case. We lost on summary judgment. I think it was correctly decided. It was somebody who reported that a person she knew in the company felt like she was being discriminated against, but the person admitted that she didn't think there was discrimination. In retrospect, she realizes there was, but at the time she didn't believe there was discrimination. She was just reporting. So that is not 
that is not something that is actionable. She ended up getting fired, but it's not actionable if you don't believe there's discrimination. So I lost that case. She became my two day a week assistant and still is. And she is the one who sent me Lydia. So I don't have a very conventional, (laughs) I don't have a very conventional way of approaching things. But when this employment practice grew, I was willing to say, okay, I do understand how to litigate in the federal court. I don't know a whole lot about employment law, but I was only doing little tiny stuff. And I'll learn the rest of the stuff as I go. And fortunately, these were both very strong cases with facts that even if I wasn't the most astute employment lawyer in terms of the law, they were very good cases. And I think that's how a lot of us learn our trade is you end up thrown in the, I mean, law school itself is like that. And the practices, you never feel like you're ready for the stuff they throw at you. You just have to be. Catherine, to, to bring this thing full circle, you are president of our organization, which includes a lot of really wonderful people. Like, I, I mean, quite frankly, I didn't even know all of the stuff about your background and what drove you to this, Catherine. So your own background suffering through what you, what you dealt with in the corporate world and whatnot. So, but a lot of our attorneys have experienced some of that themselves and, but, but fight for people. So can you tell us a little bit about NILA as an organization, what, what, what we do for our members, what we do generally just to, you know, uh, what we have going on right now? So, I'm going to preface this by saying that when in the trademark bar, I really felt that belonging to and fraternizing with and relying on the help of colleagues who were practicing in the same area of law was very important. I feel that that is even more important in the employment law area because most of us are either solos or in small firms, or if we're in not so small firms, there's a small practice that we're involved with. So what NILA does is offer its members a collegial family to assist them and support them in this fairly lonely endeavor of representing wronged individuals or maybe classes of individuals against really big structures. And NILA offers that support in a variety of ways. We have the listserv where people can say, I've got a brief due tomorrow. I can't find any law on this. What kind of cases can you guys tell me about? And people write back and say that. Or I heard about this great seminar you might want to attend. Here's the information on it. Or here's this great decision that came out. Everybody should know about this. So the listserv is one area. We also provide huge support, particularly under Max and Chiquita, who chair the legislative committee and a large group of people who are constantly monitoring laws in Springfield and who have certainly resuscitated that and breathed life into that organization so that they are testifying in Springfield. They're writing letters. They're getting the organization to write letters in support of or against laws that either help or harm workers all over. So a lot of people are very involved in that legislative work. We have another, we have just started 
robustly a student committee to reach out to law students who might be interested in this area of law and to try to provide them with support and education and networking so that they might come into an area that really needs more people in it. We have an educational arm, which this podcast is kind of a part of, and we have a brief bank where people can go look at briefs, which could be a little fuller than it is now. So we welcome people to send stuff in, which puts on a luncheon for CLE credit almost every month during the year for an hour at lunchtime called Brown Bags, which none of us eat out of brown bags anymore because we're all sitting at our desks because it's on Zoom, but it's available and it's free CLE credit. We, we put on annually a Seventh Circuit seminar on law in the Seventh Circuit over the past year or particular topics of interest. And we're having the first part of that on April 20, 20th of this year, Tuesday for three hours on Zoom with Zoom networking opportunities. So, and we support and give to NILA National, give funds and effort to NILA National, which is a national organization. So, through all of these outreach efforts, we are working to try to make the life of employment lawyers on the plaintiff's side easier, more supported, and happier. <laughs> happier. So we can laugh a little bit because this is not easy a lot of the time. Anybody can join who practices in this area of employment and for that part of their practice that is employment law, it must be at least 50% on the plaintiff side. So they, that has to be it. So I don't do 100% employment law, but to the extent I do employment law, it's well over 50% on the plaintiff side. Of note in the past year, I think we really shifted to the, the Zoom or remote format quite successfully for our monthly board meetings, for our brown bag luncheons, for our seminar, which we haven't had yet, but I, we will be having. We have improved the website and I am proud to say that we have expanded our board from about eight or nine members to 16 members of diverse backgrounds and I am it is an organization that has become, in my opinion, very exciting to belong to. And I was trying to make this point earlier about you underselling yourself. It's not a lot of we, it's a lot of you. Yeah. You've expanded the board a lot. You've pushed for this podcast and a lot of initiatives that have been awesome. Yeah. And you're, uh, you're underselling yourself. You're on the Brown Bag Committee. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's true. But I want to point out that while I will be, be willing to take along with Charlie Weissong credit for expanding the offerings of the Brown Bag Committee and bringing in some really great speakers, many of whom are our members. With respect to everything else, I maybe planted a few seeds, but the podcast, picking up the podcast is thanks to you two, Max and Amit, for turning it into a reality legislative committee is Max and Chiquita and Denise. I made suggestions. I had ideas. I suggested that we form a past president's council, but it's Carrie Hirschman who got the past presidents together to offer their expertise and their wisdom to the group. So all I did was plant seeds and say, we can, we can grow beyond what we were. So thank you for the credit, but I'd like to pass the credit back to the board members who are all 
working hard, except the four new board members who hardly know what they've gotten into. Well, <laughs> they, will be, they will be soon. <laughs> yes, next Thursday, they will know what they've gotten into. I do have to say, though, when when you reach out and ask for something, it's hard to say no. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you command, you're easy to want to fight for, so to speak, Catherine. We've had some people that we've reached out to, not just me, but other people who basically said, you know, I, I have to admit, you know, I really don't have time now. And maybe this responsibility, maybe I should bow out from this responsibility and it should go to somebody that that really has a little more time to devote. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that Brian Wood's incredible work. I mean, he's our treasurer. He keeps yeah. our books and records. He makes sure we don't spend too much money. Manages and the bylaws we, are, too. we are financially <laughs> extremely sound, but he also has single-handedly worked on amending the charter, amending the articles of incorporation to expand the board and the revision of the bylaws, which is, let me tell you, kind of a thankless task, but had to be done. So really important. And also I need to speak about Brad, who has been our recording secretary and membership drive person for several years and has done a fabulous job in that. And finally is going to get some help from some other people in that area. So all of the people, the the people that were on the board when I started were always all doing a huge amount of work already. Well, thank you for having the vision for our organization to recognize, I guess, that we needed some help and help us attract really good people and to plant the seeds that we all needed to, to do all of this. It, it's, it's a credit to you and your leadership, Catherine. And also, we, we really do appreciate you coming on. If people want to get in touch with you, how could they do that? So people can get in touch with me through my website, www.simmonsgill.com. I should say, I will, I am more than happy to talk to people, to mentor people, the whole thing. I am, would also be willing in many cases to give initial consults, but I am not taking on any cases at this point in my career that are going to turn into a 10-year marathon. But I am more than happy to talk to people and would love to talk to people about Nila. We do have one more thing, actually. We have to put you on the oh, spot yeah. here. So at the end of each every episode, we want our guests to give us a shout out of the week. So this, this can be like a guilty pleasure. It could be a book. It could be a person. It can be anything. It's broad. But it's up to you to give us a shout out. Oh, I'd like to shout out to Isabel Wilkerson and her book, Cast. Perfect. Thank you again to Catherine Simmons-Gill for coming on today. You told a really compelling and uh, important story about your Vega case, the wonderful clients that you've represented in just in a small part in these gender discrimination and race discrimination cases. And we really appreciate you talking to us today. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. Please subscribe and share. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinion. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.